When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 24. Coming up on the show, we've got Channeling the Kami of the West, Pyramidacy and the Geomagnetic Thermostat, and the Return of the World King. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. That uh, World King better be bringing some chili retardant because I am not feeling great at the moment. <laughs> is that your New Year's resolution? Aaron's chili maxing in 2023 because a new Vietnamese... Uh, a bakery, yeah. Vietnamese bakery that does the Vietnamese rolls just opened up down the road. <laughs> and what did she ask you today? If you wanted extra, she was extra like, "Would well, you like sweet chili or hot sauce?" And I went, "Oh, oh, why not? I'll have the hot sauce." And it was like caked on. And now I'm not kidding. As I'm trying to speak, I'm just like, "Because <laughs> your lips are numb from chili maxing." My face is numb. You dummy. I don't know how you're going to get through this show. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's the last show of the year. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. It's exciting to be at the end of the year. And uh, yeah, what a show have we got coming up for you today? Yes, the final episode for season 28. We are then taking our usual end of year break. We'll be returning, just to let you know, early on the 13th of January. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the break. But we've got a great show coming up. I went back into Avery Morrow's amazing book that we covered. It's got to be like eight years ago now. We had him on the show. The Sacred Science of Ancient Japan. Oh, yes. Yep, yep. And he's a brilliant guy. He's an academic in Japan. And uh, he was one of the first Westerners to translate some of these really esoteric ancient texts that aren't considered uh, mainstream history by any means in Japan. Uh, but they're, they're kind of considered para-history. Yes. Where these, yeah. these, these texts have emerged over the last few hundred years that reveal a very different history of Japan. And the reason I wanted to go into this is because on the last Plus show, we were talking about uh, Eric von Daniken's new book, Evolution is Wrong. Mm -hmm. And I sprung board out of that into Michael Cremo's old classic on forbidden archaeology and then de-evolution. And in de-evolution, he proposed this alternative to Darwinian evolution theory, evolutionary theory, which was essentially... Uh, very similar to the Vedic accounts. We basically went yeah. through this Vedic account of the creation of the cosmos and the earth and getting into the nitty-gritty of how species come about on the earth, how mankind actually emerged. And it wasn't through evolution. It wasn't from some distant ancestor. In the Vedic accounts, it describes gods descending from higher dimensions and then essentially uh, taking the form of the being they want to create on the planet. So there was that story I covered where there were two gods who took the form of deers 
and then transformed into deers and and had sex on the planet a bunch of times to create deers. And there's multiple examples of this. The other one was when they decided to become intelligent monkeys. Yes, yes, we recall the monkey sex. That was and then had a lot of that. Lots of monkey sex yeah. to create a race of intelligent monkeys. You know, I, I dug into that a little bit deeper after that show because I must say I was a little bit uh, offended's not the right word, but I was I was taken aback. Triggered is the word. <laughs> triggered is the word you're looking I for. I do not get triggered. Triggered, <laughs> triggered at no, the suggestion it, that there's anything wrong with Darwinian evolution. No, it really did make me realise, though, just how as much as I, I feel these days that I'm quite contrarian in a lot of my beliefs, uh, I'm still very well indoctrinated into the mainstream scientific consensus. And I, I dug deeper and I realised that, you know, it actually turns out that prior to the release of The Origin of Species, and I think the follow-up was something like the, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was the second publication by Darwin, right? Where the first one was The Origin of Species, it didn't really deal with human beings. Like it was just talking about species. And I think it was in that island and that he that he looked at which kind of put his theories together. But in the second book, which was, I think, 1870-something, somewhere in that range, that's where he started talking about human beings. And it just so happened that prior to that time, there were scientists out there that were collecting, you know, a history of where we've come from, right? We were looking, you know, I guess proto-archaeologists and anthropologists and evolutionary, I suppose, were looking for an understanding about the origins of humanity from a scientific perspective. And as soon as Darwinian theory ended up becoming accepted, from the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, there were a group of scientists that apparently were going out there and trying to collect as much information as they could about the origin of humanity. And they were finding, and this is where all this stuff started coming up. This is what Cremo describes, right? With ancient skeletons. Ancient skeletons that are 300 million years old. Possible objects. You yeah. know, footprints that are in ash, that are in layers, that are, what was it? I think three, that was the 300 million years old. And then, you know, it was a perfect modern human footprint. In fact, there's some, even some outlying data that Cremo describes where I think it was a billion years old, indicating that modern humans, like an anatomically modern human, yeah. existed that far back. But you know what happened? So uh, in that time frame of the late 1800s, the scientific community kind of got pushed into this consensus that Darwinian theory, that's the answer. We still had this missing link and there were a whole heap of scientists that were looking for the missing link. And th- because they were having these finds, it was still being accepted, right? It was still like, oh, yeah, well, Darwinian theory is just that. It's a theory. And we're finding these other pieces of, of data and other pieces of evidence that suggest that maybe, you know, the timeline isn't correct. The timeline got solidified when we found Java Man. So there was a man by the name of Eugene Dubois who in the 1870s, 1880s, found a skull and a femur. But he found this skull and femur 50 feet apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he brought them together and he went, oh, well, this is kind of like yeah. along the lines of monkey man. Like this is the hominids that popped up. And as soon as that happened, Darwinian theory ultimately was really solidified and anything else outside of that was suppressed and yeah. ignored. And, and when you look at the evidence we have for these ancient ancestors, like the Denisovans, for example, didn't that just start with a knuckle? Yes. Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that Just all we have? A, yeah, it was a piece of bone, a singular piece yeah. of bone. And for other species, like the, the various other hominids, you just have a jaw, you know, or you have a finger or a femur and that, that's it. But there, you, there's no complete skeletons in some cases. 
so yeah, you we... find yourself though, Ben, wandering a scientific, you know, wasteland after that though, because you can't go all the way to well, it was a bunch of gods that descended and transformed and screwed <laughs> as monkeys, and that's how we have species. <laughs> well, I mean, so where's the fine line? That was Cremo's conclusion: is that when he examined, I mean, this was a seven hundred page book that which we just touched on, but he also goes into the other stuff that we research on this show. He goes into metaphysical concepts, near death experiences, yes. encounters with non material entities, all sorts of psychic stuff he goes into. And generally his conclusion was that the Vedic, and he's not saying it's correct, it's not like written in stone that this is how it happened, but he said the Vedic cosmology of how human beings and living things were created on the earth is more in line with the actual data, with the actual uh, archaeological findings and the history of those findings on the planet Earth than Darwinian evolutionary theory. That mm. was his conclusion. And the reason I, I went into the sacred science of ancient Japan today from Avery Morrow is because you will start to see, especially if you heard that last show and you're a PLUS member, you will see all these similarities that emerge with the Vedic accounts from this so-called lost history of Japan, which Again, it goes into gods descending from higher levels of heaven and creating human beings, creating all sorts of things on earth. And it goes into great detail, like the Vedic text, how they went about it, uh, how much time it took. And again, it has these mentions of huge stretches of time. This yes. is a, a tweet that I did last week about the ancient kings of old. The fact that you have a Sumerian kings list that goes back, you know, half half a billion years with kings reigning for a hundred thousand years or more. If you go into some of these so-called para-history documents of ancient Japan, they talk about exactly the same thing. This ancient king ruling for over a million years. It's really interesting that these parallels exist. And with the documents I'm going to be talking about, Morrow does this brilliant contrast between what's in these so-called ancient documents, and they emerged in, it, would have, it was around the early kind of 1900s, 1920s, 1930s period, and he draws up all these coincidences. Like, for example, um, there's something mentioned, I won't go into specifics now, but there'll be something mentioned in this ancient Japanese text. And at the very same time that this emerges in the consciousness of some researchers in Japan, Edgar Cayce is doing a reading in the United States revealing the same thing. Oh. Or there's some theosophist in Europe who's talking about something about ancient races and it, it's, it's also it's in these, these ancient documents. So I'm looking forward to going into this because when we had Avery on the show, like what happens with an interview, you cover very broad strokes. Yes. You can't go into the fine detail. So I want to go into the fine detail today and dig more into this idea of what the true history of ancient mankind is. What have you got? Well, I'm going to go into something a little bit similar. It crosses over a little bit, but basically it's about the origins of, of man, but not so much the origins of man, but at least the, um, I guess, the connection that we have to our history, you know, where man fits into the landscape and how the landscape actually speaks to us and how we can utilize it to access the history that is, you know, the information which is stored in certain sites around the globe. And I don't know what in, form, in what format, but it's something that's esoteric that, you know, tells us our history, tells us about who we really are, because that's kind of the human condition. Ultimately, we want to know where we've come from, who we are, and really, you know, the other one is what is beyond 
beyond death. So I'm going to go into some of the recent work by Paul Devereaux, um, Stanley Krippner, you know, tying in with how you'd never believe this, but there's certain locations around the world that act as focal points. And that's very much, you know, Paul Devereaux's research where he's done things like the Dragon Project, where he's looked into, you know, megaliths, Stone Age megaliths, Iron Age megaliths, and found that they've got these special properties, these unique features, uh, which tie in potentially to geomagnetic activity, which then ties into this weird thermostat system that I've come across that it's like a geomagnetic thermostat for the Earth that regulates the uh, expression of telepathy and esoteric knowledge. What? Yeah, it, and it explains why. So when you go and do certain parapsychological scientific experiments, like you try to apply you know, a scientific you know, architecture to something that's, that's paranormal, why sometimes it works and sometimes it fails, even though you have exactly the same set of circumstances going. Well, that would be good to know. Yeah, and so we might be able to map that, and ultimately it comes around to this idea that, yeah, there is this system that is trying to give us the knowledge, and it's ingrained into the land. But the problem is, because we no longer speak to the land, and this is you know part of one of these things of where we're approaching, like we're really going hard into materialism, because we don't acknowledge or speak to the land, we're actually losing a vast amount of information. And in fact, it's almost like, you know, we see ourselves as modern human beings as being so sophisticated, so technologically advanced. But the reality may be is that we've gone down the wrong path from a technological standpoint. And people in the Stone Age might in some fashion Hmm. actually be more advanced than we are. So it's a very, very intriguing way to look at the world. So we'll go into that in our plus extension towards the end of the show. Yeah, awesome. Well, great show coming up. Let's go into this 2014 work from Avery Morrow. Uh, he goes into the official acknowledged ancient history of Japan, which is essentially from two surviving sources, and they're called the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on these today because they're pretty well known, and if you want to check them out, there's lots of detail in the first half of his book, but he points out, you know, they're full of, it's almost like ancient Greek history, like they're full of gods and uh, this pantheon of gods doing incredible things and interacting with human beings. And he points out, look, obviously very few people in Japan today actually believe that these two ancient sources accurately describe the history of their country. Um, It's folklore. Yeah, it's considered folklore. And and scientific archaeology has shown that before the Imperial Court of Japan, there was this primitive era where people used stone tools. That was the Jomon period. And then there was an Iron Age that followed. This was the Yayoi period. But there's this huge conflict with this conventional understanding of that progression through the ages of the history of not only Japan, but the history of mankind. Because these ancient histories don't give that impression. They don't describe this rising up out of a primitive state. Instead, these ancient sources, these two documents, describe human beings as being descended directly from the gods. And how familiar is that? Mm -hmm. Now, in both books, the gods create the islands of Japan. They fight and love there. They give birth to the first humans who then begin the imperial institution by divine right. And even after the focus of the histories switches to the material world, uh, Morrow points out that the interactions between men and gods remains constant throughout the narrative. And this reminds us of the history of ancient Egypt and other... um, ancient like civilizations that have this same mythology of the gods still interacting with the earth walking with the earth and having interactions so both of these texts the uh, kojiki and the nihon shoki 
they were compiled in the 8th century. Uh, there's origins that trace them back a little bit to the 7th, but it's all kind of, you know, up in, up. There's, it's questionable, basically. So are the, the Shoki um, guardians of some kind? Because uh, Nihon, you've got Japan, and the Shoki are like figurines that they put on, you know, um, houses oh, in okay. Kyoto. I didn't know, I don't know any of the Japanese terminology. Right, okay. But um, I presume that's what it's referring to. Uh, but I'll give you some bullet points from the basic story. So, and again, this ties back to the Vedic account that we spoke about on the last plus show. In the heavenly realms, basically in the heavenly kingdoms, in up in, you know, some kind of higher dimension, there was this mass, this kind of formation of matter and intelligence that formed into what he describes as kind of a jellyfish. It's kind of like That's a like the energy, uh, you know, system that I was talking about on the plus show. Remember yeah, we were right. describing that it was this bands of energy that drop down all the time? It's the same concept. Yeah, it's There's like an a, intelligence to them. It's like an intelligent giant jellyfish. mass of amorphous jellyfish energy. And from this, the first kami or gods sprout like seeds. Now these gods rule the universe for several generations until two of them are given a mission to descend to the earth and perform a ritual, which is actually just procreating. It's just having sex. And through this ritual, they populate the planet. It's like what Kribo described. It's what, it's, well, it's from the Vedic accounts. It's oh, there the you same, go. So it's the same interpretation. It's the same yep. idea um, of these beings descending and being responsible for this population of the planet. Um, there's even a similar ritual because I remember in that Vedic account described and paraphrased by Cremo, again, two gods are selected, male and a female, yin and yang. They're sent down and they have to populate the earth, but they screw it up. So they basically, they start off okay, but then they ha in one of the stories, they have to return to a mountain shrine and they have to ask the gods what they did wrong. And then the, the gods tell them how to perfect the ritual so then they can go on with their mission. Is that where the Kama Sutra came from? Is that what they were teaching them? <laughs> no, well, there's... Like you didn't do it the right position? <laughs> well, there's an exact same story in this this Japanese source where when these two gods descended, it was a man and a woman, and they did this little ritual, but the woman spoke first, and it basically... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it wrecked up the order. The order was ruined. So when they had a child... It was like this weak kind of little um, deformed monkey thing. It wasn't like a human being. So they had to go back to the gods and the gods said, yeah, the man's meant to lead and speak first. So when they came back to earth, they did it properly and then they started to create human beings and, and living things. So again, very similar to some of the Vedic accounts, but there's this older uh, document called the Kujiki which he spends a lot of time on. It's very interesting, but I won't go into too much of it. Um, it said it was, the, the proponents of this document said it was the original source of these other two. And it was ultimately banned by the government. Like the Japanese government in the early 1900s, maybe even earlier than that, just started rounding up these books, burning them, destroying them. Uh, people that promoted them were imprisoned or persecuted. And they, they banned this information. Why? Well, it was considered a threat to the official order of the empire. Mm. Um, but eventually it was un unbanned in, I think, the around the late 1930s or early 1940s. And so independent researchers started uh, looking at this text again. It's called the Kujiki. And generally, they were interested in promoting this kind of patriotic interest in Japan's heritage. But a few of the researchers took a different approach to studying this document. 
So in April of 1944, a there was a meeting of, well, he calls them para-historians in Japan. Yeah. And they're just kind of like, I guess you could say like the, the Graham Hancocks. Yeah, they're the Devereaux. Yeah, that, those kind of people, they got together. But instead of reading and going over the documents, they decided to do this weird Chinese divination. So it's basically like a giant uh, Ouija board made of sand and then they use branches as the planchette and it starts to spell out sentences how, in the sand. How big are we talking? Like, do they stand in a sand pit with a big branch or? Well, we've covered shows where we've shown um, contraptions that. Sure, but they're desktop size. No, no, no. I, I think we've done ones where it's kind of like the size of like the key in a basketball court. Oh, like yes, a little I do square. vaguely recall. Like a little yeah, sand okay. square. And yeah. you have this contraption hooked up with ropes and pulleys that naturally just swings around and it acts as kind of this random planchette. And when you ask the source of the documents, like you ask the energy, the entity behind the documents, it will reveal answers for you in the sand. So this is what they did. It's supposedly this ancient Chinese divination technique. And rather than giving the answers they expected... When they asked who they were speaking to, the branches spelled out Japanese characters. It spelled out Ame Hi Su Ku. Now, everyone there was like, what the, what is this? Ame Hi Su Ku? What, what does this mean? No one had any idea what this meant, except for one guy. His name was uh, Tenmei Okamo- Okamoto. And he was basically intrigued by this name that was given in the sand. And he started to go to this encyclopedia of shrines and, and look for this name, Amehi Suku, Amehi Suku. And he eventually found it after days and days and days, because there's like thousands and thousands of shrines. He found one that wasn't too far from Tokyo. And it was under basically under the same name. So when he visited this shrine, something strange happened. He claims as soon as he entered the grounds, his arm started to throb, like it started to pulse, boom, 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 boom. And he was suddenly possessed, like this feeling came over him that he had to write, and that's why his arm was was pulsing. Oh, so it's kind of like channeling. So he grabbed a brush and ink, and he grabbed a, a, a parchment, and he started to write. And occasionally he would look down at what he was writing, and he, he couldn't understand it. He couldn't read it. It was a text he didn't recognize. Now, this was the beginning, Morrow writes, of the Hitsuki Shinji, the sun-moon revelation. Eventually, it became a collection of a hundred books of automatic writing. In this unique script, it has phonetic numbers and weird symbols. And he points out that it's very similar to what Emanuel Swedenborg produced centuries ago because he had this language of writings from heaven that was made up of of strange numbers. And Morrow says you can decipher it, but it's complete agony to go through it. And uh, let me give you an image to put in the show notes, Aaron, so you can take a look. And even if you don't recognize any like katakana or anything, just just look at this text. It <laughs> looks like complete madness. Like who would even attempt to figure out what this means? I mean, there is, you're right, there is some hiragana in there that you can see, but it's it's not consistent. Like, there's ka, no, but yeah. Yeah, there's like weird circles and squiggles and... <laughs> yeah, some of it's just completely there's, foreign. There's numbers, like there's an 89753 sequence to it. 
Oh, there is two. Yeah. Anyway, this Hitsuki Shinji has never been translated into English. And the author, so the god that was channeled by this guy that went to the shrine, this entity claims it's the god of Abraham, it's the god of Christ, and it's the god of Muhammad, basically the god the Abrahamic of god. the Judaic religions. The first chapters written in 1944 forecast that Japan would lose World War II but rebuild quickly. Now, this manuscript was widely copied in the Japanese army and apparently it's said to have saved soldiers from suicide because they were obviously despairing for the future of themselves and their nation and they read this document and it says that Japan will rise again. Now, the chapters that deal with what happens after this rebuilding of the nation basically talk about God warning that the modern world is unsustainable and has been misguided by occult forces called Ishia who are leading the world to straight collapse. And Morrow spends some time with this term, Ishia, and I actually did some research today to try and find it, and it took ages to try and find this Ishia and what it actually means in Japanese. The only translation I could find was roughly um, stone merchant. Oh, so as in a stone mason? Mason. And that's what Morrow says in the book, question mark, is this referring to the Masons? So this is occult forces called the Ishia leading the world to collapse. So what is coming within our lifetimes, according to this document, is a worldwide crisis that will be as precipitous as walking along the edge of a cliff. But human beings will be able to pull through this challenge by growing a spiritual resilience. It asserts that all things will become one third of their former sizes which seems to imply a great reduction in arable land, in food and population. It also says that Japan is the nation of origin and in the coming crisis, those loyal to Nihon, the nation of origin, will have a unique challenge to face that requires special spiritual training. And they have this symbol they use that is the symbol of the people of this path or whatever, but it's basically a circle with a wing in it. It gets very strange. So is this like an actual hidden group? Yeah, it says that, well, these people need to find the original crystal nature of their souls and it directs them towards becoming one with the kami or the gods. Okay. Now, he does stipulate that this doesn't mean Japanese people. This is this idea of the people of the Nihon is just people that follow this path. So you could have someone who's Japanese that doesn't follow this path. It, it sounds a little bit Marikari. Yeah, it's basically like this cult that's appeared out of nowhere. Uh, but y- you shouldn't misunderstand it as being some Japanese nationalist movement. Okay, it's, right. It's not that. It's like a, a world thing. Anyway, I'll link to that uh, in the show notes if you want to read more about it. There's probably a whole other show talking about this guy that founded it and how he did all this automatic writing. He also talks about the ancient world having six major extinctions. Yes. And, where and we've been through six, haven't we've we? We've been through six in the past. And this was also in the Vedic accounts that humankind had gone through six previous extinctions and we're now in the seventh age. And we pointed out in that last show that this also corresponds to the mass extinctions that we know from history uh, in you know from 300 million years ago and beyond. So I might do more of that in 2023 and come back to that. But what I wanted to focus on today is these documents called the Takano Uchi documents. Oh, yes. These you remember things. these now? Yes. 
So these have captured the hearts of many spiritualists in the imperial period in Japan, but they were never endorsed by anyone of authority in Japan. They were eventually confiscated by the government for over a decade, uh, and they've been ridiculed since. Um, you know, they're not taken seriously today. It's considered this kooky parahistory of Japan, uh, certainly not mainstream academia, as I said, by any means. But these documents proclaim that the legends of the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki, that remember those two that are officially recognized as the founding mythology of Japan, they're actually part of this grand ultra-ancient tradition that is one and the same with the teachings of Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism. So these documents... Quite they, a contrast. Yeah, these documents, they first appeared in 1928. They describe an ultra-ancient planet united under a line of world emperors. Now, again, what's weird with this timing? These Again, these documents came out in 1928. Only a few years earlier, Ferdinand Ossendalski had published his book, Beasts, Men and Gods, where he describes his escape from the Soviet Union. Remember, he goes through Siberia. He goes into the Buddhist kingdom of Mongolia. And from there, he emerges with this story of Shambhala and the king of the world, that there's this emperor waiting. There's this like heavenly proclaimed king waiting to emerge again when the time is right. And the French occultist, we know René Gounon, he used this as the basis for his most controversial book, The King of the World. He argued that Ossendowski's books joined countless religious texts and ancient legends attesting to this universal truth. Was this was, the Maitreya stuff? Uh, I don't know if Gwenon went into Maitreya. That might have come from a different source, but... Is it he, the same concept? It's the, well, Maitreya is a little bit different, but it's, it's talking about this original sacred center ruled by a king of the world. So this kind of holy land, this holy place, this almost um, a place of divine authority where this, this emperor ruled uh, over the world harmoniously. And um, uh, neither Ganon nor the other commentators were aware that in Japan, this text was emerging in 1928 that was essentially saying the same thing. It's mm. this really bizarre coincidence. And I'll go into more of those later. But this, this story, again, listen to how... This compares with the Vedic accounts. This is the basic Takanoichi story. Billions and billions of years ago, and remember in the Vedic accounts, one day of Brahma is 4.32 billion years. Mm -hmm. This Takanoichi document tells us that the world was a sea of mud. And after 22 billion years of formation, out of all of this emerged the first god and goddess. And the heavens and the earth were separated and became a firmament. The earth hardened and became a sphere. The god and goddess gave birth to another couple representing the sun and the moon. And in this way, the earth took form for six generations. And then along comes the fifth generation of god and goddesses who give birth to the creator of nations and his wife who descend to Mount Kurai in Japan and take on shining bodies. This is like the shining ones mentioned in ancient Egypt and in Celtic folklore as well. They are the gods descended from heaven. 
And in the seventh generation, various beings developed technologies for life on Earth, such as transportation and writing. The first calendar was eventually made, consisting of 12 30-day months, which were followed by intercalary days. Each month consisted of three 10-day weeks. And in the seventh generation, Sun Sun God declared the beginning of the lineage of the world emperors. Now, these world emperors were called the Sumera Mikoto. And this is... Uh, how you would pronounce it in ultra-ancient Japanese language that doesn't exist anymore. He also set out that the islands of Japan would be distinct from the rest of the planet and named them the land of Hidama or the sun sphere. So the name Sumeru Mikoto is broken down by one of these researchers who studies these documents. Uh, His name's Wado Kasaka. And if you break down the syllables, like the center, the unification, the sun, the seed, it all breaks down into these separate components. Um, and it also has the masculine principle of yang, human characteristics, it's all in there. And they refer to Sumeru Mikoto as the son of the sun, since he was descended from the sun god. Now, according to René Gunon, the French occultist, this son of the sun is also the Vedic name for the king of the world. It's the same name. Yeah. It matches once again. So the sun god's heir began the high ancient dynasty and after 8 billion years dispatched his sons and daughters around the planet to found their own nations. And remember that those 8 billion years are like a day of Brahma and a night of Brahma. Mm -hmm. So it's like he had had a day and then he sent his, you know, progeny to do their work on the planet to found their own nations to populate the world. He divided the world into 16 sections, and for each new uh, section, there was a king or a vassal that was instilled. These kings became the five coloured peoples, the five races of earth. The white people, the blue people, the red people, the yellow, and the black. What happened to the blue and red people? What happened to the blue? Well, the red people, you could argue, Native Americans. Maybe. But well, what happened to the blue people? Where are the blue guys? See, that's the thing. You know, humanity just wiped them out. We're terrible people. We're all terrible. Maybe they deserved it. <laughs> Maybe they had it coming. <laughs> I, knew, I knew those were the words that were going to come out of your mouth. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Maybe they had it coming. The old blue people, huh? <laughs> yeah, kind of had it coming. And... There's an excerpt from Plato where he's talking about a description of Atlantis and he says exactly the same thing. Like he's talking about um, his grandfather had this original writing and he expounded it to Plato when he was a child and it was talking about this allotment of gods who distributed the earth into portions and made them, they were essentially kings of each portion. It's the same story in Plato's uh, writings as well. So some of these kings, these founding kings from, remember, this is like millions and millions of years ago, are named in these documents. So on the 10th of Sane in the, what is that, 1.03 billionth year of the reign of Samara Mikoto, the Samara Mikoto descended on Mount Hirafure in Yomoitsu, which is in Europe. The king of the red-coloured race was named Adam-Eve. Adam-Eve. Wait for it. I know that sounds crazy, but just listen. The king of the white-coloured race, Korotomamasu, and the king of the blue-coloured race, 
Kiambocha paid a visit to the Samera Mikoto. Remember, the Samera Mikoto is the emperor. And were then appointed as the uh, kings over the places where they resided. So this seems to be, if you compare it to a biblical account, this is the time of Eden. This is where everything's perfect, everything's wonderful, except there's no Adam and Eve. It's Adam, Eve, and it's a single king. But he's not hes not a king of, I guess, what you would say, the yellow race or the, the white race. He's the king of the red race. And on the other side of the world, at around the same time as these documents were released and studied, the French occultist, René Guénon, he's writing this. He's doing research where he says the literal meaning of the name Adam is red. And we can see it in one indication of the link of the Hebraic tradition to the Atlantean tradition, which was that of the red race. So this ancient Japanese document describes the king of the red-coloured race as Adam Eve, and through, on the other side of the world, completely unrelated, they have no idea, René Ganon has no idea what's going on. In France, he's doing all this research into Western occult history. He discovers that the name Adam means red, and it's tied to the red race. Oh, it's just mind-blowing. It's actually mind-blowing. Where does this parallel come from? So after the establishment of the 16 nations on the planet, the world emperor's role essentially was pretty swish. Like he got to tour around the world and basically ensure peace and rule were being kept among the five colored peoples. Now, in ancient times, how would he get around? Well, he had this thing called the Ame no Ukafune. Which is a Japanese vimana. Yeah, it's a flying ship. Mm. He got around in this flying ship. It translates literally to the floating ship of heaven. And using this ship, he could visit all of the kingdoms in a matter of years rather than decades. Uh, and actually, this Ame no Ukafune, this flying ship of heaven, was already known to Japanese historians. In those two founding documents I mentioned earlier that are officially recognized, they describe a flying ship called the Ame no Iwafune, on which the ancestor of the Mononobe clan descended to earth. So it doesn't say that they traveled around in it, but this is the origin story. They came down in this flying ship of heaven. In the Takanouchi documents, the ship was used by the gods to descend to earth, but then they used it afterwards. They kept it and used it to get around everywhere. I can't recall. Do those documents describe that ship um, being placed like the Ark? You know how the Ark was supposed to be on Mount Ararat? Is it describing that the ship was placed somewhere? Well, I think for Mount Ararat, I don't think that's mentioned. I do know that, um, no, I won't mention that because this comes up later, but it's kind okay. of used as a taxi for Moses at one point. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so All we'll right. get into that. Uh, but basically it was the world emperor's uh, private flying limo. But if you were a really good king, he would let you borrow it for the weekend. That's basically that's what the documents say. Um, now, what's fascinating about these... Uh, this flying ship of heaven, the Ame no Ukafune, it needed, according to the documents, a really good takeoff and landing space. It basically needed an ancient airport. Oh, so I can't even hover. Well, yeah, you're expecting some kind of yeah. like vertical lift jet or something. No, it needed like a nice strip. And these airports, there's a name for these airports in this ancient text. And it's the Japanese word hane, which means wing. 
Now, even today, that name Hane is found all over the world. One example is Haneda Airport in Tokyo. Oh. It's got Hane. It's the same mm. name. Now, one of these Takano Uchi researchers, because there's like there was hundreds of them at one point. Now there's probably just dozens, but you know, it's their life's work to go through the, these ancient documents. This um, researcher, he found nine of these Hane airports uh, in Japan, but they run on this vertical ley line. Uh, this ancient prime meridian he discovered right through the middle of Japan. And if you follow this ley line through Japan and you get to the northern end of the line, there's a pyramid-shaped mountain called Tongariyama. And today, it's known for what? UFO sightings. So this is kind of in the line with the Paul Devereaux's work. It's the same kind of idea that these locations that pop up on Earth, they're actually a, um, an accumulation point for these Earth energies and they utilize. And what people are seeing with UFOs may be some type of uh, Earth light which is popping up there. And sometimes because the whole concept is, well, no, you can tell the difference between, you know, a, a solid metallic looking craft and a light in the sky. Mm. But in some of his research, which will go into the, in the plus extension, it's quite abundantly clear that some of these earth lights can actually manifest as looking like they have a metallic surface. So, which is really unusual because then it's going to suggest that, you know, it may not actually be extraterrestrial. It might just be a natural phenomenon. Yeah, that's interesting. I, the problem with this, mention of like a Japanese UFO hotspot is there's no information in English. It's you yeah, can't it's, it's almost impenetrable. Follow it up. It's, it's hard to look it up. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the emperor would travel around on this flying ship and he would be welcomed with the highest honor and respect. And he never had to use force because when we think of some kind of world emperor today, you know, we think of Foucault and other political thinkers who basically assert that any kind of authority on that scale re requires violence, requires terror. Yeah, and it didn't requires no, destruction. You're right. Yeah, but it didn't need that. This is something different. This is like the mandate of heaven. This is where people recognize the divine uh, right of this individual as like they're literally seeing him <laughs> like descending from heaven as having not kind of an authority by force, but a spiritual authority. Mm. And this was recognized. And respecting it. And he could essentially come in and if somewhere wasn't doing too well, he could proclaim a new king, you know, just with his, just with a speech and then everything would be done according to his, his um, desires. So all the people of the world were taught about the origin and authority of this Sumera Mikoto. So his judgment could resolve any dispute and ensure complete peace. And as these world emperors, because that was just the title that they had, the Sumera Mikoto, but each generation there would be a new one. Uh, they were the ultimate source of law, but they also introduced technologies to the people. So each world emperor, for example, had his own form of writing. And in the first generation, they used pictograms. And then the next generation was more abstract. And by the final generations, they were using this brush script that's similar to katakana. Now, the Japanese people at the time, because remember, the island was considered like a special zone. The, they were known as the Hibito, the people of the sun. And they were given special duties to maintain these imperial teachings. So the world emperors themselves, they only lived in Japan. But here's the interesting twist. They weren't actually Japanese themselves. Oh. So here's how they did it. They were eventually represented by all of the different races on the earth. And... 
they it goes back to that idea of this original descending from heaven and then mating with one of the mortals, right? Mm-hmm. So this original emperor, when they were looking for a successor, they would seek out amongst the races of different colors, the five colors. They would seek out a woman of pure heart called the uh, Kisakinomiya, and they would produce an heir with this woman. And then that heir would be the race of the mother. Um, And when no male heirs were produced, there would be a world empress who would, in a similar fashion, find a man of pure heart and then produce offspring with them. And that's how the emperor continued through the line. So again, it wasn't just this Japanese thing. It's just that those people of the sun had this unique responsibility to maintain the teachings and maintain this essential heavenly order. Um, So eventually this practice of selecting a spouse, according to the documents, um, this ended in a later dynasty And this is tied in with the decline of this world emperor's power. And from this point on, the world emperor was forced more and more to limit his activities to the island nation of the sun, Japan, and only the people, the Hibito, the the people of the sun, were dispatched around the world to continue the education programs and keep this higher knowledge alive across the planet. So what went wrong? Well, it's almost like it ties into the yugas as well. Oh, yes, but the cyclic I'll, nature of it's it. It's a good question. I'll, I'll get into that in a moment, but we've got to go back again to France, to the French occultist Ganon. Always back to the French. In his book, The King of the World, uh, he finds all these testimonies and witnesses to conclude that in ancient history, there was this idea of a holy land par excellence, Morrow writes, essentially the prototype for all other holy lands to follow, and that this was a spiritual center to which all others were subordinate. This is what he discovered in the uh, in the Western uh, mystical um, lineage, and it's also in this document in Japan. It's just it's so strange because they didn't. There, there was no translation. Yeah. There's no way they could have known that each would have this thinking. That's what makes it so compelling, though. You're absolutely right, Ben. The fact that you've got these, you know, opposite sides of the world, people that are delving into the same sort of concepts, but they're coming up mm. with identical information. And, and Gunon found through various cultures references to this, and it went under different names. There was the Holy Land, but also the Land of the Saints, the Land of the Blessed, the Land of the Living, the Land of Immortality. And with the Takanuichi documents, Japan could be described under all those terms, and essentially, this world emperor is what Rene Gunon is describing as the king of the world. And he proceeds to say that this land was available to us only in past ages, hundreds of thousands of years ago, and that it is now invisible and inaccessible. Oh, so is that suggesting that it's like what a dimensional overlay, like it's still there, but we can't, we maybe because our ability to access it previously has now atrophied. You see, Morrow doesn't touch on this, right? But I think you might be onto something. And this is because of all Devereux's work today. Yeah, it's an idea that's not explored that the document isn't actually talking about Japan. Maybe it's somewhere close. Maybe the document just happened to survive in Japan, although Ganon's pointing out that the knowledge of it seemed to be everywhere. It's global. Maybe it was somewhere else and that somewhere else has been lost. It's like Mount Olympus. Like was Mount Olympus an actual place where you could climb up there and see the gods or was it 
somehow removed? Was it in another dimension? Was it separate in some way we don't understand? Well, this is like what you hear described by uh, you know, metaphysical people that you know travel to Mount Shasta. Like there's some really, uh, obviously there's some very crazy stories out there about people of, of what experiences they've had at Mount Shasta. But then there's some more level-headed people that kind of say, hey, I've gone and I've found that there is some type of underground city there. or But they didn't go there because they went there physically. Like they went to the mountain yeah. physically, but they somehow had an out-of-body experience and, and then saw it and then other people validated it. And there's similar ideas for the legend of Shambhala in yes. Tibet, that it's not a physical place, it's a it's a dimensional anomaly oh, of sorts. Look, even to put it into tis the season, you know, it's like the idea that the North Pole, like there's stories out there that Santa, like the, he actually does have a place at the mm. North Pole, but it's only accessible by people who believe. Oh, I've got Christmas references coming up. Don't you worry. <laughs> this is a Christmas themed show, by the way. So It's like the diehard equivalent of a Christmas themed show. It's great. The basic idea is that the Holy Land was closed at the beginning of the Kali Yuga, at the beginning of our time period now. And the spiritual center was sealed at the beginning of this age, and it's going to be reopened later when the age of materialism ends. Just out of interest, what age is that that it started? The end of the Kali Yuga. Oh, okay. Right too far back. Because I have a reference to some uh, remote viewing that was conducted in Japan that uh, happened around, like the, the new term for like the new world in Japan was around 450 AD, somewhere in that range. Okay, yeah. And that's where everything, but obviously we're talking about much further back. Yeah, thousands, thousands of years. Uh, and then there's also in these documents descriptions of cataclysms. So earthquakes, floods, um, they're called the Tenpechi. And there's dozens and dozens of them over the course of history. They're caused by an imbalance in the order of the heavens. And it's it's like these get worse and worse and worse as history progresses as well. And eventually the documents talk about two whole continents being destroyed. There's Mioi and Tamiara, uh, both in the Pacific Ocean. They both go under. So oh. obviously you got to think, is this Atlantis? Yeah. Is this Lemuria? Lemuria. <laughs> So this uh, world emperor, after the destruction and all these uh, cataclysms, again, is forced to scale back his activities and eventually he has to end them. He has to put a stop to them. Now, this comes about because a new plan is born and the education of the higher education, the spiritual order of the five coloured peoples of the earth, it wasn't working anymore. And the people of the sun couldn't maintain this higher understanding. So they decided on a different course of action, and the emperor agreed on this, that they would guide the world in its material development, that they would allow the world to follow this path and fulfill every possible, uh, I guess, achievement in materialism. And once that age was complete, the higher knowledge would be unlocked again. So Takanoichi researchers believe that this work began on the other side of the world. And the first group to be, I guess, removed from this rule of the emperor and to set out on their own path of materialism and essentially separate from the emperor, the Samara Mikoto, was in the ancient Middle East, in the Fertile Crescent, the Sumerians. And why did they call themselves the Sumerians? Oh, the, the word from before, yeah. was it Sumer? Sumera Mikota is the name of the emperor. Oh, that's... So they named wow. themselves after the emperor, the Sumerian Sumera Mikota, or Mikoto, sorry. 
So one of the researchers interprets the documents as saying that over many decades, these teachings were slowly wound up and then they were disguised as myth and religion and spiritual messages in order to allow the material society to develop and flourish. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that Rudolf Steiner spoke about as well, that the development of materialism was part of this uh, set path that we had to go through that... uh, and he talks about the different the Europeans being the vanguard of this materialist development, which is essentially true. And that once this age was over, there would be a time, once this materialist age was over, Steiner speaks about this next stage, this next evolution. Um, and this is essentially, again, another parallel in these documents. It's talking about the end of this material civilization. It will reach its natural conclusion. And these this tradition, this tradition of the world emperor will be revealed and introduced again. René Guénon, the French occultist, again said the same thing, that this true tradition is hidden rather than lost. And it's lost only to certain secondary spiritual centers that have ceased to remain in direct contact with the supreme center. So this knowledge, it was hidden, it was buried, it was taken secret, it was obfuscated. But there was one family that kept it, kept it safe, kept it secret. This was the Takano Uchi family. They essentially preserved the initiation into the principle at their grand shrine to the imperial ancestors at Koso Kotai Jingu, which is located in Toyama City today. All the spiritual teachers of the world would travel there and learn these hidden principles, the principles that were now locked up under lock and key. So by the time the Yamoto dynasty was founded in Japan, and this is like 6th century AD at its earliest, Japan no longer had the technology and abilities it once had from this ancient time. And in fact, ordinary people no longer knew how to write the ancient script from this ancient time. The language was lost as well. It had to be imported from China and Korea. And the Takano Uchi family still kept these secrets, though. They still kept the secrets of writing. They still kept the secrets of technology. And for the, good or for selfish reasons? No, just to protect it. That was their mission. And the emperor still reigned. Now, there is a real historical figure in Japan known as Takano Uchi no Sukune, who is claimed in one of the other te- texts, the Kajiki, to have lived for over 300 years. And he apparently commissioned these Takano Uchi documents to be created and protected. So this family, they preserved the documents in urns under secret locations beneath this shrine uh, in Japan, awaiting the day when the world would be able to understand the content and they could be revealed. Um, Unfortunately, the original manuscripts of these teachers didn't survive World War II. Oh, fragments oh, remain. There's fragments that remain. There's a general, Yutaro Yano, who passed away in 1938. He kept some of it in his journals. And there was a Christian uh, Japanese named Kiku Yamane, died in 1965, wrote a book in 1938 that had excerpts from these. So we know that they, they existed. But the most notable teacher to travel to this shrine in Japan and receive this knowledge, because remember it was tucked away. It was held secret. You had to be initiated to go there and receive it. The first notable teacher we can mention that went there was Jesus. Birthday coming up, Christmas theme show. Oh, I see it. That's great. Yeah. Now, does that fit into that idea that 
Like that's because he's buried, isn't he buried allegedly somewhere yeah, in Japan? Yeah, all tied in with this. So many of you will be familiar with this idea that Jesus in those years that he vanished actually travelled to India. And the Takanouchi documents take this further and say after he stopped in India, he continued to this shrine in Japan, to Koso Kotaijingu, where the head priest, seeing his innate abilities, gave him ninja training. And this is in the official text. Where's the sound effect? I'm waiting. <laughs> I don't have a ninja sound effect. I need a gong there. Perfect. Close enough. According to Yamane Kiku, one of these researchers, Jesus acquired the ability in Japan to perform approximately 20 divine ninja arts out of 50 or so. Curing diseases was the preliminary stage of one divine art. The divine techniques included the skills to disappear, jump up or down from a tall tree, which is so tall that one cannot see the top, walking on the surface of the water with a bamboo rod that's thrown in, and walking in the air and purifying a room or purifying soil. Of what? what you, of, I don't know, disease. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Vermin, I don't know. After Jesus re- receives his ninja training, he returns to Israel to demonstrate the great spiritual message and ninja abilities of the divine principle. But as we know, he became a wanted man. His brother, and this is whole other, like I can't even go into this. There's this whole other thing of Jesus had a brother who took his place on the cross. And this is essentially what the Takano Uchi documents affirm as well. That uh, his brother who happens to have a Japanese name, I don't know why, Isakiri, uh, took Jesus' place and died on the cross. And uh, it was actually Jesus' brother who Judas handed over to the Romans, not Jesus himself. So, great, again, Christmas-themed episode. <laughs> I'm just trying to unpack it all. Like, it's a lot to... Uh... Get your head around to say the least. So Jesus escapes persecution. He returns to Japan, continues his ninja training with 14 new disciples from around the world. Jesus now has disciples from Japan. He has Ainu disciples, Italian disciples, a German guy, a Native American, a Jewish disciple, a Roman, an African, and an Australian. <laughs> As in... And Jesus, with his new crew travels around the world spreading teachings of peace and love. He finally died on December the 25th, 82 CE at the respectable age of 118 after which he was buried in Japan. And you can go see his tomb today in Harai village in Aomori. Oh, that's where it is. Yeah, it looks like a mound basically. Yeah, that's the Jesus mound. Yeah, it's a Jesus mound, yeah. Uh, Moses also came to Japan in his time, but the Takano Uchi documents don't say much about him, but they do say that the emperor sent him his UFO to pick him up (laughs) because apparently (laughs) Moses didn't have time to walk all the way to Japan. It's a bit of a walk. Yeah, it's a long way from that region of the world to Japan. It's a bit of a hike. Yeah. I mean, just to get some ninja skills. Yeah. Like to be able to jump out of a tall tree. I'd be like, well, I'm not climbing any trees anyway, so I don't really need that skill. Can I just skip that one? Do I have to do the jumping out of a tree ability? Look, it was nice of him to send the UFO. Other foreign masters who have studied at the shrine over history include Sakyamuni Buddha, Lao Tzu, Confucius, uh, Shufu, and Muhammad. Is this all contained within those documents? Yeah. And I don't know how much of it is in the documents and how much 
of these researchers who came later yeah, have, it a little have bit. basically inferred this from the documents through their own ex- like ex- extraneous research. Yes. And so you would find characters like the Japanese Rex Gilroy <laughs> among these. Does he just hold up a plaster cast of Jesus? <laughs> yeah. He's like, look, it's a religious figure. <laughs> so in uh, 1893... The patriarch of the Takeuchi family, who had been keeping all these secrets, passed away. And in his will, he informed his grandson, uh, Kiyomaru Takeuchi, that the world was actually changing really rapidly and that the family's treasures and documents were nearly ready to be released. And they could be released when the world had become peaceful. So this grandson, Kiyomaru, He kind of left it alone for a while and didn't want to follow up on this, but moved to a temple called Kuramadera and he underwent ritual training. He underwent this ancient training. And this temple is still there today. Um, It was Buddhist at the time. This is in the, you know, the late 1800s. But um, today they worship a being said to have come from Venus 6.5 million years ago. Oh, I've heard of this place. Do you know this one? Yes, yeah. No, it's certainly unusual. And other researchers have connected it to Theosophy's uh, Sanat Kamara. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. So there's this idea that the same being, that he came from Venus six million years ago. And again, this ties into the, the like this sounds crazy, but we're already dealing with documents that are talking about yep. the reigns of yep. kings who are already gods going for hundreds of, of thousands, if not millions of years. Yep. So why not? Uh, while at this temple, Kiyomaro told a visiting traveller that his household possessed divine texts and special abilities, but he declined to show them. Well, you what know, a like, tease! Yeah, yeah, like oh no, I just uh, I, I've forgotten the code. I bet it was a, safe. I bet it was a woman. <laughs> what? I guarantee it was a woman, and he was like, "That was his pickup line." <laughs> He's like, um, "Do you know that my family has many leather-bound ancient documents?" <laughs> yes. She's like, "Get a- fresh. Get away from me, freak!" <laughs> uh, he later moved from Toyama to Ibaraki. He took the documents with him, and the old stories that these were buried in clay urns and in various locations. He took some of them with him. Finally, in 1928, he made public the most important texts of the divine age. And by 1929 in Japan, hundreds of researchers were poring over these documents, fascinated by this information. Um, And then the Japanese secret police got involved. They took him to trial, they seized the documents, and they were destroyed in the firebombing of World War II. Allegedly, though. You have to wonder, I mean, okay, where did the Japanese secret police get involved and why? And they're claiming that they were destroyed, but were they? Or did they get hold of them and then claim they were destroyed? Well, he didn't take all the documents out of the urn. So the idea is that there's still some of them buried in locations that only the family knows. But today, only a few copies, photocopies and relics remain. uh, And yeah, the remainder of the documents are still buried. And the idea is the Takanoichi family, the lineage, will unveil them later on. But... Uh, the interesting thing of, uh, with this is when we get to Katsutoki Sakai. So as the documents were being uncovered, this individual named Katsutoki Sakai, uh, he was this occult researcher. He eventually became an occult researcher. He had just come back from the Great Pyramids at Giza when the Takanouichi documents were being released. And I've got to talk about this guy a little bit because it ties in the whole story. 
So this guy was a Christian convert and he was raised by American missionaries. He actually moved to San Francisco in 1898 and he studied the Bible. He learned classical music and he obviously mastered English. And when he returned to Japan, he edited like English newspapers and wrote English languages on music. But the turning point of his life came one evening. This was June the 7th, 1949. And he glanced up at the moon. Sorry, not 1949, 1914. It's 1914. He glances up at the moon and he sees this halo around it. And he suddenly remembers that the halo is an ancient Far Eastern omen for war. So he looks up at the moon, he sees this halo, he's like, that must mean there's war coming. And then he's shocked. As he thinks this, he sees two beams of light go and cross the moon to form the sun cross. And I'm going to give you an image here for the show notes, Aaron. Mm -hmm. Let me take a look. So you can throw this in. See that? It's coming through. That's what he saw. Oh, well, it's kind of like got a, a Celtic kind of look to yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's an ancient symbol. And as he watched this, he he basically felt touched by the divine. He wrote later that even in my transfiction, I could not suppress my ecstasy. My heart felt as if it had seen heaven and a thought had come from heaven. So it's this ecstatic moment. Mm. And he realizes his vision was incredibly meaningful, but he couldn't make sense of it. Remember, this happened on June the 7th, 1914. Two weeks later, Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated and World War I begins. So it really was spot on, this omen. Now, because the war starts, he was eventually stationed with the Japanese army in Harbin. He saw for himself the horrors of modern war. Uh, But there's a biography written about him where eventually he started to believe in this kind of anti-modernism. He had this idealism about reimagining civilization. He could see that the path that the West and the rest of the world was on was leading to this pure materialism and ultimately destruction. And he was right so far. He started to intently study Christian Armageddon and what sort of society would be established at the end of this material age. And his vision of that cross on the moon that he saw became a symbol of Japan and Christianity maybe sharing some kind of joint destiny. And he thought perhaps Japan would have a role to play in this positive Armageddon that's that's coming. Now, in 1918, Sakai was sent to Russia for the Japanese arm of the West-East Alliance against communism. And while he's there, yeah, he's fighting communism, but he also plunged into texts taken from the Russians. And he soon became a national expert on the global Jewish conspiracy. What? His goal was to uncover how this conspiracy could hasten the end of the world and the coming of the Messiah. So he spends a couple of like, months in Russia. He comes back. <laughs> he comes back full yay. He comes, he's 100% yay. He's, he's read like, you know, the protocols of Zion, uh, the elders of Zion and all those texts. And um, he's convinced that there's this Jewish plot to control the world. <laughs> and the Jews are basically ruining Western nations from within. And But this is somehow part of God's plan as well. And he's, he's wondering whether he should help accelerate it. <laughs> it just goes crazy. Anyway, he gets home from Siberia. 
and he realizes that the truth is more complicated than just the Jews. It always is. So according to his theory, secretive groups like the Freemasons had long ago forced the Jews from their country, were being anti-state revolutions in, well, sorry, were behind the revolutions in France, America, and Russia, and now were manipulating the Americans and Russians, especially to force people into egalitarian democracy and communism. But there were Jews working against them to repel modernity and create a worldwide theocracy. Soon the Jews would come to Japan and unite with their long-lost brethren to restore Jewish-Japanese theocracy to the world. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Did you just... Jewish-Japanese theocracy. Yeah, so when we're all com- united in this one-world religion, it'll be some kind of weird Shinto Juna- Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm up for that. Why not? Yeah, it'd be great. Uh, so here's the thing. Japanese people needed to be wary, not of the Jews, he says, but of the Americans who were being manipulated by these Freemason uh, conspirators. So so now it's starting to sound a little bit xenophobic, Ed. Keep in mind, this guy hasn't even heard of the Takanoichi documents yet. He's got no connection with it at all. This is just this guy's story, okay? After returning to Japan, he runs into Kiyomaru Takauchi. And he starts reading the Takanoichi documents. And he suddenly realizes that it's not the Jews who would come to help the Japanese. It would be the Japanese who were the original center of the world. And they were, in fact, the ones who created the Jews. This is what he realized. Because remember, what? it's like the, the whole idea is this ancient land with the world emperor seeded the world with knowledge and guided all the races and all the civilizations. So that's what he means, that they're responsible for the development of the Hebrew people. Oh, dear God. Are they the blue people? <laughs> <laughs> Who's the blue people? The Jews. Yeah. I don't know. Why would they be the blue people? Oh, well, they they're not blue. Wiped. Yeah, but no, but they have like this bit of attempts to wipe them out a lot. Is that what happened? Is that what happened to the white, the blue race? Why are you going back to the blues? Are gone? I think the blue race is gone. Okay, all right, that's maybe fine. they are the blue race. I know that's what I'm saying. Hmm. Well, I take back what I said earlier. Then, in that case, <laughs> <laughs> I have to disavow. Disavow. I disavow Benjamin Grundy's statements. <laughs> well, we didn't know Ben. <laughs> yeah, I was like this Japanese guy. I had no idea. He, he recognized the truth in the documents once he read them and immediately he was obsessed. He started searching for archaeological validity of the documents. Uh, he tried to validate their claims. He visited the gravesite of Moses in Ishikawa Prefecture. He discovered a bunch of artifacts with strange writing on them. And this is where you really do get into the Rex Gilroy of Japan idea where he's finding these... he's seeing it everywhere. He's finding these scriptures and these weird metal plates and these artifacts. So he, he finds... He actually finds this artifact, right? And it's got this script on it that no one recognizes. He takes it to the Takanouchi guy from the shrine, the, you know, the descendant of the family. And he, he basically gives it to the guy and says, look, I, I found this like near the, the mound of Moses and it's, I'm sure this is connected. Do you recognize this strange writing? Like, what, what is this? And the young Taka, Takauchi goes, oh, no. Do not know. So that's a lie. And Sakai is like, no, you've got to know. You Please, you've got to trust me. We, you, you've got to be able to help me. And he just goes, okay, 
wait one moment. And he goes into the cellar of his, of his little house and he's scrounging around in the basement somewhere and he comes out with this object and it's all wrapped up in cloth and it's very old. He blows the dust off it and he unwraps it and it's like, it's like another kind of metal. It's not sure what material it is. It kind of looks like metal, but it's like a block with the same script on it. And they contain the front and back Ten Commandments of Moses in this ancient script, which the Takano Uchi guy knows. And he claims that the front commandments, they're very similar to the Hebrew Bible, almost identical, right? But it's also got a, a list that follows. It says in this ancient language, we report the universal laws of Romulus, 60th generation descendant of Adam Eve, king of the red race. And then it's got these 10 commandments and they're completely different. They're like an additional 10 commandments. Number one, thou shalt obey the true God of heaven, Nihon. Thou shalt obey the true Hitzuki, sun and moon God. Three, thou shalt not disobey the sun God, for if thou dost, thou shalt be smited. Four, thou shalt not disobey the law of the God of heaven. Five, thou shalt not disobey the true emperor, Thou shalt protect the laws of the five colored peoples of heaven and earth. Thou shalt not disobey the law of the true people of Ajichi. Thou shalt rescue the red of heart and correct the black of heart. Thou shalt inform thyself of the stories of the gods. Thou shalt worship the sun god, Aberuhi, O Amen. The artifact is signed, the law of all nations, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments of Moses. So this old Japanese guy had in his basement all this time one of the tablets from Mount Sinai from Moses. But then why is it different? Why? I mean, it's because Moses Moses must have brought a copy with him when he traveled to Japan. Remember when he got a yeah. lift from the flying UFO? Yeah, he must have brought a copy with him, and he left it in Japan. And the idea is like when he came down from the mountain and he saw the golden calf, and then he smashed one of the tablets. The idea is that this maybe this was the tablet he smashed oh. because the people weren't ready for it. And that's why he left it in Japan. He left it in the, the Palace of the Sun because the other people wouldn't be ready and it would be revealed later. That's the general idea. So this, when, when what's his name? Sasaki. When he discovered this, was that his name? Sakai? Sakai, sorry, I don't know what Sasaki is. Sakai, when he discovered this, his whole cosmology was complete after he saw these documents. He came to see Japan as holding this unique ability to create this ancient world again, to instill this true world peace, establish divine theocracy under a restored world emperor. And he identified the world emperor with the child mentioned in the book of Revelation, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and Japan would be the place prepared by God. And the time had come for the emperor of Japan to take his place above and beyond nations. Now, again, you be, you'll be hearing this and going, whoa, this is like dangerous uh, ultra-nationalist. Well, that's ja- what I was thinking before. Like Japan where... You know, like the it's Japanese, the Japanese race has a divine right to rule over the earth. Yeah, scary stuff, right? 
But at the same time, he didn't think like this. He warned that this could not be a justification for war. It wasn't a justification for racial supremacy. He actually wrote in 1930 that just as the sun would not allow itself to be monopolized by one nation, the emperor will not permit domination by one nation or one people. The emperor, the son of the sun, must work for the happiness of all nations as he did in the ancient past. So he would eventually go on to spread the word of what he had discovered in Japan. He started to proclaim that those two ancient documents I mentioned earlier, the Kajiki and the Nihon Shoki, weren't telling the truth about Japan's true history or the world's true history. And then he started to claim that some of these strangely shaped mountains in Japan were actually pyramids. Okay. Buried beneath the earth, they were, in fact, man-made pyramids. And he wrote a book on this called The Pyramids of Antique Japan. Now, again, the secret police, uh, he's on their radar. Is it in English? No, it's, uh. it's never been translated. And they are not amused by what he's saying. They believe that his whole new pyramid Takanoichi cosmology is a threat to Japan's educational regime. They seize and destroy all copies of Pyramids of Antique Japan and they put restrictions on his movements. He's basically under house arrest. Now, the book is now legendary in the Japanese occult world because of its rarity. Like, there's just, there's no uh, libraries in Japan that have the first edition. It's, it's probably worth millions and millions of dollars. But this guy was unfazed by this persecution. So he journeyed to the outskirts of Tohoku um, and he was looking for the Hihi Rokane, which is this stainless metal that's found in the Takanouchi documents. It's kind of like memory metal from Roswell, right? It's mentioned throughout these documents. And Morrow points out it's very similar to what Plato described in Atlantis with the orichalcum material. Oh, and if you recall, there's reports of the Japanese Atlantis off uh, the coast of Okinawa, I think, isn't it? Uh, Yonaguni Jima? Yeah, that's, that's all this is connected in a way. Um, but as 1940 approached, he felt this foreboding. He felt that the end of days was rapidly approaching. But what actually happened was he fell ill and died in July of that year. And in 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and began the Pacific War. So it's like he had this inner feeling that it wasn't the peaceful period when the Takanoichi documents were meant to be released. Like they had mistimed it. They had jumped in too early. But when is the right time? Because it just seems like for the last, you know, a long time, let's say a thousand years at least, that we've just been embroiled in, in war. When the mole people emerge from their caverns. Yeah, mole people. <laughs> that's when it's time. When the mole people come and their armies wipe out all the filth from the world. Oh, and we all take people. a harem of 10 mole women. <laughs> that's not how it works. To start our trad mole people Stop families. with your weird fantasies. You're not, <laughs> the, the mole people are nowhere near as hot as what you think they are, Ben. So after this, he goes through all these researchers in Japan and he says, without exception... Any researcher in Japan who has dedicated their life to the Takanouchi documents has had a spiritual experience. And he goes through a bunch of these. Like one researcher of the documents claimed that uh, Kiyomaru, Kiyomaru Takauchi, the grandson who was like released all this knowledge, um, one researcher claims that uh, they saw him levitate and that his grandfather had actually taught him this ability to fly. 
um, but the spell wasn't passed on to his descendants. There's another uh, researcher, the general Yutaro. His wife was possessed by a spirit who caused her to do in uh, like automatic writing, and um, she basically was told to start writing down this well the name of this shrine Torio Kotai Jingu and that once this was researched a million things would begin and this shrine was where the Takano Uchi documents were essentially right. held um they were baffled by this message until they discovered that's where the documents were from there's um another researcher who had a dream about Christ standing on the Bering Strait bathed in the light of the sun and in the dream was basically guided by Christ to find this ancient document, and it was the Takanouchi document. But my favorite one is the researcher Wado Kasaka was climbing up a hill and looking at Mount Fuji and basically blubbering, like crying, please tell me are the Takanouchi documents true? Just reveal to me if they're true, and if you reveal that I'll dedicate my life to them. I don't want to waste my life. Please let me know the truth. And in response... He said he saw this brilliant shining golden ball kind of fly up out of over Mount Fuji and at the speed of light zoomed up the mountain and basically hover in front of his face, this glowing like ball lightning golden ball. And it started to speak to him and it said, this is the true history. Rest assured in carrying out this research, we in heaven will protect you at all times. If you deviate, we will guide you in the right direction. And then just disappears. And he's like, ah. (laughs) And there was another researcher who actually had a revelation in France, Mikoto Nakazono. He uh, was at these twin megaliths on the island of Belle-Ile in France. When he prayed to the stones, he received messages from Celtic ancestors who had programmed them into the stone. This has got to be a Paul Devereaux link to your stuff coming up. And these Celtic ancestors confirmed the message of the Takano Uchi documents and also expanded on them, talking about they being they were one of the races that were guided by the world emperor in the past and that the, the land of the sun held the information. And that was a confirmation for them. So this is where we've got to look at the astounding coincidences with these documents. We've gone through... The crazy part. Like we've heard of, you know, Jesus jumping on a UFO to get ninja training. We've heard of Moses getting a lift and all this crazy stuff. But if you go back to what these documents say and the time they were released, you cannot ignore the high strangeness coincidences. So number one, these documents talk about these periods of time where these world emperors in the past would live for millions of years. And then as the the dynasties progressed, this would get shorter and shorter and shorter. Yes. Until you get to the time today where we have this really short lifespan. Because that's the hard thing to get your head around sometimes is you hear these depictions of them living for millions of years and you go, well, clearly this is myth. Like clearly this is myth because we know that that's biologically impossible. But then if you start tying it in with these ideas of different golden ages and the amount of time, it all makes sense. And this parallels the cycle of the Yugas. Yes, and yeah. This is the thing that's interesting is the the keepers of the Takanouchi documents weren't aware of the Yuga cycles. They didn't research them. They had no understanding of that knowledge. 
All they had was the knowledge from the Takanouchi documents, but it's basically identical to the Yugas. One weird link is the documents describe the planet that the world emperors reigned over as being home to five coloured peoples who were scattered throughout each continent. They claim these groups appeared simultaneously and coexisted for millions of years and did not fight. The first person to propose the simultaneous appearances of different races, it wasn't the Takanouchi documents. It was Edgar Cayce in May of 1925. Cayce also talks about five different races, which he says came into existence roughly 10 million years ago. This was just... This was three years before the Takanoichi documents emerged, but there was no translation of Casey's information to Japanese. He wasn't known of in Japan until years and years after his death. What is this connection? And then you've got the the five elements. So the five elements, the Wuxing, correspond to the five races as well. And this concept uh, hadn't emerged anywhere else, but it was a concept in um some kind of occult research in Europe that wasn't connected. But then you've got the catastrophes. I like this this one. So the documents describe a world continuously rocked by these catastrophes. Decades after the Takanouichi documents appeared, you have Emmanuel Velikovsky, who developed his own theory that the Earth was subjected to constant catastrophes in the deep past. Mm-hmm. And he was highly criticised. But... This is what he talked about, the same kind of thing. It's its in these documents. It's in Velikovsky's research. Um, and it also talks about um, the Takanouichi documents have 2,000 different types of this ancient script. It's called the Kamiyo Moji. It's said to be the origin of all writing systems. Ferdinand Osendowski, the, the famous Western occultist, he claimed that in the West, the king of the world used an ultra-ancient script called uh, Vatanan. The Vatan script of the Kingdom of Agatha was written about by that French researcher, Savay Alvedri, Savay Alvedri, because he wrote about Shambhala and all of that. He he wrote wrote about this same thing, this this kind of script that was the basis of everything. And then anyone who's read James Churchwood's The Lost Continent of Mu, that classic Mm. from 1950 or 60, whenever it was, um, he rediscovered ancient documents telling of a completely forgotten empire of the sun where distinct peoples and races were ruled under a single emperor. And he mentioned, of course, sunken continents. But Churchwood's book wasn't known in Japan until 1932. And the Takanoichi documents were released in 1928. So again, there's no yeah. translation. How does this information emerge? It's almost like it's coming from a singular source. It's coming from something real in history. So the whole point of this, you know, to, to finish on Morrow's conclusion, is that there are these parallels. These parallels exist. And you have researchers like René Guénon in France and, and others around the world who talk about this idea of a holy land where these teachings come from, ruled by a world emperor. And it's not some kind of laid out Here's all the facts. Here's how it definitely happened. You know, maybe the Takanouchi documents are full of crazy wild things that aren't necessarily true. But it is pointing to the discovery of a deeper truth. And that's what these other occult researchers were getting at, is there's this, this truth that's revealed in, in other mythologies and cultures. This um, Emperor Barbarossa sleeping with the knowledge or King Arthur returning to save his kingdom or the Redeemer, the Mahdi. There's countless others of these 
legends of the return of this knowledge. And adherents believe in a new age of world peace when the myths of Japan will be reconciled with the face of the world, but that this new age requires a spiritual understanding of the world emperor, a symbol that they believed is still present but concealed all over the world. And René Ganon, in his book, The King of the World, he talks about events unfolding with rapidity that we can't imagine, where you can see these... um, like he says he wants to avoid prophesizing, but he says that the doctrine of the king of the world does have some pertinence to our modern situation, our modern world. In what sense? Well, it does feel like we are certainly at the the end of our tether with this materialist society. Yeah, the world's increasingly chaotic. It seems like people are more depressed, more anxious. There's war. There's a whole heap of issues that are going on. We're falling apart at the seams. We're more divided than ever before. And... He, he actually quotes, Ganon quotes this French monarchist saying that we must be ready for an immense event in the divine order, which we are traveling towards with an accelerated speed. James Churchwood said something similar. He said, what is to be the end of this present civilization? And the Takanouchi researchers talk about this fast approaching age of Miroku. What's that? It's like, like a golden age, a return to a golden age when the world emperor will be needed again. So Morrow finishes by asking, why were these legends revealed in the 20th century? And what sort of immense event are they pointing us towards? That's the question. So I highly recommend The Sacred Science of Ancient Japan. There's amazing stuff he goes into after this talk of the Takano Uchi documents. But in the plus extension coming up, before we get into your stuff, Aaron, I want to say that today the Takano Uchi <laughs> documents have been uh, hijacked by retards. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, awesome. There's a website called takanouchi-documents.com and they've got these weird like animated videos that look like they're written for children. Oh, no. And I, I just want to quickly mention them after the break for Plus because their idea of what this future world will be it should be called the Retardano Uchi documents or something. It is so dumb. It is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So that's coming up in plus. And remind us what you've got coming up for our final plus extension of season 28. Uh, what we've got coming up is going to be fantastic. We're going to dive into the work of people like Paul Devereaux, Stanley Krippner, uh, and a wide range of other parapsychological researchers that have taken a look at you know, the information, the esoteric information, which is somehow encoded and hidden into our very landscape and how we're not reading it, we're ignoring it. And as a result, it is having a detrimental effect to our society, very much of what you've been talking about on this episode, Ben. Uh, but it also coincides with people having highly unusual experiences with what appear to be maybe earth lights, but there's something more to it. There's an intelligence to it. There's like a, a plasma energy um, life force to it that we're going to get into. We're also going to see how that ties in with dreams and other paranormal phenomena as well. So that's all coming up right after the break. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. Sign up today, get access to the big extensions we do on every single show. And if you sign up for plus, you also get an exclusive show that comes out every Tuesday as well. Again, this is our final episode for the season. So it's perfect time to sign up because you've missed all those shows that we've done. You've missed all the plus extensions. You've missed all the plus shows if you're not signed up on plus. And if you sign up for MU Max, you get access to our entire back catalogue as well. So while you're waiting for us to return from our break on the 13th, you can listen to all those old shows. Plus members also get a higher quality audio version of the show. 
And again, if you sign up for Emmy Max, you get all the, the back catalogue as well. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. That's a wrap for 2022. If you're a free listener, we'll catch you again in 2023 on the 13th of Jan. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next year. Plus extension, great to have you with us.